0: Welcome, everyone, to the Bolt from the Blue podcast. This is Mike Long, a.k.a. Bolt from the Blue. It's been a little while since we talked to you after the last one, but that's because there's been a few little... Complications over here in South Korea with the coronavirus, but uh, you can be sure that uh, your mate Mike here is coronavirus free and uh, we're going to get into this first particular pod. And this is a review of the game against West Ham, but with a lot of very, very useful information uh, about FFP from Colin Savage. We've got Colin and Ray here on the pod and we're going to start off and and take register to see if um, both these guys are here. do we have savage comma Colin?
1: you do yes I seem to have spent most of it, it when I'm not in work in front of a microphone or a camera. Obviously we had a, the pod on Saturday we recorded uh, just before that I'd spoken to BBC News I've still not watched that. on Sunday I did uh, I was invited to do Ian Cheeseman's Forever Blue podcast which originally was going to be about just about city matters. Of course, um, other matters intervened, and I ended up doing a vlog with him and then doing the podcast. Monday, I rushed home to do Nigel Rothbard's Man City show, and then later in the evening, uh, Love Sport Radio Man City show. But Wednesday, of course, was the match, and uh, I got calls during the day from both the BBC and Sky Sports to do slots with them at the ground, so I did that. Bubbles, comma, Ray. <laughs>
2: I'm here, of course. I'm here, chuckling away in the background. I had a pretty quiet week. Not much happened this week, uh, to be honest. Uh, I don't know why, why, why Colin's been so busy. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I was dropped, basically, after my appearance on Sky News uh, last Friday. Uh, I, I think I had an appearance with them. They had a chat with me for about 10 minutes, and then they said they had a problem with the audio. Uh, so this was a pre-recorded for the 11 o'clock news. They had a problem with the audio. So can we do it again? Or could I make my answer shorter? Because I, I, you know, I, I talked about all sorts of stuff, um, which was, uh, I think, all uh, good and proper, and criticised uh, bits of UEFA the Premier League as well when they start talking about point reductions and bans. And I, I went on to talk about Liverpool and United potentially influencing the next Premier League. What do they call it? It's not president, is it? Chief executive or whatever. I, I don't think I kind of um, suited what they were looking for, and they just. Kept about ten seconds of my interview in where I said I was surprised and shocked that we'd got a two-year bad. That was about
1: it. <laughs> and keep keep his answers short, yeah. It wasn't the most exciting game. We perhaps expected that the team would come out fired up, and they were certainly pretty um you know, they had a good goal at West Ham. But um, the usual story really, nothing was going in in that first half and, and it started when Gabby J had a chance to shoot then try to be too clever and, and take it round a man and, and lost the opportunity and had another Couple of opportunities, one of which was not as easy as it looked. But it looked like being one of those, and then we actually scored from a corner to go in one nil up. I mean, really, you can sum that game up quite quickly. West Ham didn't really offer anything going forward, and they weren't great at the back. I mean, decent in midfield, but they—you they, know—that's a team that's got problems. I think, unfortunately. That—that's a starting lineup. Uh, to me,
2: struck me that Pitt was already thinking of the ne- next two games. We've got Leicester at the weekend, where we really want to win. And that I think, if we can win against Leicester, that will probably cement our uh, second spot. And also thinking towards Real Madrid, uh, because I, I was surprised uh, if, if it was his best team. He'd, I, I thought he, he would have had to include Riyad Mahrez in his best team. But once again, it's, it, it was a pretty, um, I think, almost almost the best team we could stick out with Fernandinho on the bench. Like Colin, I was extremely disappointed with Gabby Jesus. Extremely disappointed. He had. For me, I think three very good chances, and I think he should have been scoring at least one, probably two. If he wants to get anywhere uh, at City or any top team, he's got to be putting chances away like that. Sometimes he plays uh, well, he has some, um, he scores some fabulous goals, and then at times like this, when you need him to play well, and he, and he messes up. And I've said it time and time again, when we do play Real Madrid, if it was Gaby J and he has three chances and he scores no goals, and we end up losing and getting knocked out 1-0 or something, Then we're going to look back and say, you know, and and he's going to have the finger pointed at him quite rightly. So he's got to take more of his chances. And the game itself, um, it's a bit up and down for me. You know, we had a few chances. Uh, We didn't score uh, apart from that that corner. Uh, Some terrible crossing from Mendy. Basically, in the air, his crosses the paw on the ground. They're all right. He looked very lumbersome and cumbersome uh, to me. Um, But for me, it was... It's summed up, same as normal. We missed some early, excellent chances. Then the game gets a bit stodgy and slow and laborious. And the opposition slowly starts into the game, which is what I felt happened. And yeah, it, that, that first goal from a corner couldn't have come uh, sooner enough.
1: There's no guarantee he would have scored, of course, but he should or would or should have got one on target. And, of course, taking that extra touch, which we've seen so many times, not just from him, from other players. Sterling is particularly guilty of that this season. Aguero's done it. Um, You know, everyone has done it at some point. They've taken that touch too many instead of just having the shot. And it's... Pep you know, must stand there and watch it. And surely he's saying to them, guys, take the shot. I won't criticise you if you take the early shot and you, you you miss or it gets saved, but just take the shot. Because we saw, if you remember at Old Trafford last season, uh, Bernardo took that early shot when De Gea wasn't expecting it. And we scored the, the opening goal. Uh, you know, it's just become a, it's almost become the, the, the backdrop to our season that, you know, they're just You've just got to take one touch too many. I mean, the, the classic was Davy Silva, um the other week. I mean, well, you know, still think about that. What the hell was he thinking? Yeah. And, and it's, uh, Pep must say, some, Pep surely must be saying to them in training, hit the damn thing.
2: They were poor against us. The- you know, they turned uh, against City, basically looking to not get battered. And that was it. And it's not, you know, when you're already in the bottom three, you've got to be looking for a bit more than uh, avoid getting, uh, getting them all in. Uh, the next game, if I remember correctly, is against Liverpool. So, is that Anfield? I don't see them getting anything from that. Look, the, I can understand why Moy's set up the way he did, either trying to hope to get a hold out for a draw, and a nil-nil or get looking, you know, get a point from the game, or not get battered because it's really tight. They're on minus fifteen goal difference. Watford are on minus sixteen. Villa are on minus sixteen. Minus fourteen from Bournemouth, and they're all within two points of each other even if you go up to someone like Southampton and Newcastle, they're minus 16, even though they're seven points ahead. So I can see why he did it, but they've only got two points out of their last five league games and they're going to have to, at some point, get a win. Other teams keep getting into good form and then losing it, like Palace have lost the last three, Villa have lost three out of five, but they've got a win in there as well. Bournemouth have been having a, a really shocking run. They've got a couple have had a couple of wins recently. West Ham are really struggling. They're not scoring a, a lot of goals. And they're letting in a lot. It's a recipe for disaster. Moyes after the game saying that the players worked hard and this and that. Fans were really, really up, unhappy, and a lot of them are already calling for Moyes to be given the the bullet and to get somebody else in.
1: Well, there are a few. Until you wait for chance, a few banners. I think I said to Sky that the fans. One thing this will do is galvanise the fans, and unfortunately, that the game was so tame. There was nothing really to to get behind But I do think it's kind of I don't know, shaking us out The the, the way City were playing Coasting to a very poor second place The fans were starting to lose interest a bit But I think the UEFA stuff Has actually rekindled the fans And um, certainly the Real Madrid game Home game will be very feisty
2: But uh, Manchester was (laughs) taking the mick a little bit A bit naughty From very early on uh, taking the mick The thing is that I've seen them both run, and Moonchester runs like an athlete. You can see uh, much better shape, uh, higher knees. Uh, he's more, he's much. He, you feel he's uh, had some experience as a, as a as a sprinter. Whereas Hammerhead was all uh, is like at West Ham, all guts and uh, a bit of huff, huff and puff. And eventually, he got nothing out of it. He was uh, well beaten.
1: The West Ham fans who had made the trip, you know, a long trip midweek. We've seen teams that aren't particularly good up front, aren't particularly adventurous but they defend well and West Ham I don't think even they weren't even that compact at the back a case of city settling into a bit of a tired rhythm you know it was a very straightforward second gear type rhythm we settled into where West Ham showed no interest in getting the ball off us and we showed barely more interest in getting it forward there was someone who said it wasn't a particularly great keeper a great piece of goalkeeping keep, f- by um Fabianski, but, um, you know, we worked the ball really well. De Bruyne was one on one, bit of an angle, squeezed it through Fabianski's legs. And all great goal will tell you that the two places you want to aim for when you're one on one with the keeper is between the legs, between the feet. How waist height, because that's the two areas goalkeepers find most difficult. Kev did just that. Aimed it between the legs. It was a goal, and that was game over, really. Well, I'm, I'm just,
2: I'm just, I'm going to quick look to see if it actually went through his legs. I thought it was. It beat him at the near post. I
1: thought that's it went I... through his legs. I only ever, I only saw it live. I'm not even. Well, uh... watch the highlights to be honest. It was yeah. such a dull game.
2: It was, it was. I mean, that's one of my in, in, in last notes I wrote was after we got to 2-0, that game was boring as anything. It, was, it really was. Um, I mean, that that, that goal, uh, to, to sum that goal up, when I mean, you had KDB driving through, he did what was a, a long one too with um, Bernardo Silva. So, and I think what Bernardo Silva did, he flicked it past the um, defender and he was going to go and chase it for himself. He was slightly off balance. And at the last second KDB came through and he shouted, apparently shouted, leave it, leave it. Um, Hits it quite firmly at the near post. And I think the thing was, not giving much of a defence with Fabianzki because he shouldn't have gone past him, really. But I think he was expecting uh, Bernardo Silva to do something with the ball. And then KDB came out uh, basically out of nowhere and, and finished the, the move off. So... I don't think, you know, as I said, I think it went through, um, in at the near post, which is a, you know, the game was already drifting away from West Ham and at 2-0, it, it did become a bit of a ball fest. We had a few other chances. Gabby James, missed out on what would have been a cracking goal from a, a cross from KDB with the outside of his boot. It was a fabulous cross. And once again, uh, Gabby, he chested it down and then he just kind of took his time. And, and the goalkeeper comes running out and makes himself big. Surely you should be hitting that along the floor. Uh, and and give yourself a chance to score into Fabianski's chest. Yeah, the game kind of uh, petered out uh, pretty much after that.
1: Yeah, well, uh, you know, um, Kevin De Bruyne took the shot on. He didn't try to play three passes to walk the ball into the net. He took the shot on and uh, that's what we want.
2: No. (laughs) Look, KDB scores a goal, um, grabs an assist. Nobody else for me had standout performances. Laporte was nice to see him come back and, and do okay. But nobody really, for me, Sean, even though you can, people will say Rodri had was it more uh, completed passes on his own than the whole of the West Ham team put together, I don't think he had a brilliant game. There were some mistakes, a poor header, poor passing,
1: and he didn't really have much to do because West Ham offered nothing. To light the fire again, if you like, uh, we need to replace company will we'll, we need to replace David Silva will need to replace Aguero so we need you know we need to do a little bit of a rebuild in key positions uh, and the question has been asked will players come if the no Pep's not going to be there we've said this before if there's going to be a rebuild he ha- either has to stay to do it or goes now in some ways the great thing about the news from UEFA is it almost forces him into a corner because I you know It would look very bad if he walked out now, wouldn't it? You know, you think about it, he's got a club, he went to Barcelona, and we're seeing some of the goings on at Barcelona at the moment, where the president, uh, Bartomeu, is um, apparently hiring private detectives or social media firms or whatever to uh, dish the dirt on people to try and ensure his own re-election. And of course, the manager, to a large degree, is the meat in the sandwich in those situations where you've got... Uh, A fan-owned club and an elected ownership. Bayern was a bit the same. So he's come to a club where he's, you know, he's not got people looking to be re-elected every few years. He's got a stable ownership. He's got supportive ownership. He's working with people that he knows and has worked with before. You know, he's got all the support in the world. We should give him more press conferences, mind you. But I think we did see Simon Heggie grow a little bit of a pair today. Why would he go somewhere else?
2: We've been called all sorts of names just as simply supporting our club. Okay, you will get some fans who go over the top, who go a bit too far, make some uh, ignorant points, let's be honest, without knowing too much and just parroting stuff. But the fans have taken it a lot and it was really good that he came out uh, and, and said uh, what, it, what he did uh, and the way he said it. Look, you're never going to win because you're going to have, um, as we did, the um, pathetic press coming out and complaining you know, that it was an in-house interview and no one was asking him robust questions and follow-up questions and going into detail. But he explained at the start, and I'll uh, accept this, there's only so much you can say. You can't, you you can't prejudice the process against yourself by leaking and and, and if you're going to try and possibly win on technicalities and what you UEFA have done wrong uh, with their leaks and everything else, why would you go down the same route? So. And I thought it was, uh, pretty, uh, for me anyway, a, a reasonably robust, um, interview, uh, from a city side of things. And as I said, what he said uh, for the fans and how he, you know, finished off what he said about the fans. He said, he said, he said, the fans can be sure of two things. The allegations are false. We will do everything that can be done to prove so. We know the fans are supporting us. We can feel it. Man City fans have gone through challenges for decades. We'll stick together. We'll go through it and we will not let the club or the fans down. You know, you can't ask uh, for more than that. And they do need us. They do need the fans because I think to galvanise the fans behind the team, behind the players, I think that's going to hopefully build us up ahead of this team, especially going into Leicester at the weekend, and Real Madrid in the Champions League. I think, as Colin said, that will galvanise the fans. There'll be a lot of noise uh, when we play uh, in, uh, Real Madrid in Manchester in a few weeks' time. Oh,
1: well, I, I welcome Soriano's statement. It was a uh, long longer, which is perhaps a bit insulting. Nice that the club, good that the clubs came out and said something, I think they needed to. And, and certainly the one thing I'll pick up from that statement that, that struck me was, he talked about something i have been talking about during the week, about UEFA, and we look at UEFA as this homogeneous thing, you know, this homogeneous entity, when really it's not. There are almost two parts to it. One is... Um, Because it's a member organisation made up of all the European clubs, effectively, or or it's a regulatory body for for all the European clubs. And I know Soriano has said in the past that it's a problem. It's not just a regulatory body, but it's involved in the the business of sport as well. And he thinks that's uh, a conflict of interest. But, But what he did say was interesting, I say, which I... I've been asking people to think about is that say, UEFA is... There's a bureaucracy there, the regulatory bureaucracy. So that's uh, Alexander Seferin heads it up. And there's people who work for him on a full-time basis. And then, of course, there's there's uh, representatives on the executive committee from the world of football and, and, and other places. So it's, there's the European Club Association, which, which I'm not sure what the exact relationship with UEFA. But that, they wield a very powerful voice. And they're basically... For people who don't realise, European Club Association is a successor to the old G14. So the same people who were powerful in the G14 retain the power in um, European Club Association. They can nominate, I think, two people straight onto the UEFA Executive Committee. Now, I now, say, so the point is UEFA is a, a bureaucracy. You know, it does things on a day-to-day basis. There are people who work for it. And it's also, if you like, the voice of the clubs, And I think this is what Soriano was getting at in his earlier statement. I think he made that a few years ago. And it's what he was getting at um, on Wednesday. I say there are two bits to it. I think the bureaucracy, Alexander Seferin, we know that he's been desperately trying to do a deal. He wants life as smooth as possible. He wants all this to go away. I don't think he wanted this in the first place, to be honest. But he wants it to go away with the minimum possible fuss. The problem is, and we've said this before, he's got people in his ear telling him they want us to be severely punished. So that tells you two things. One is that UEFA is not a homogeneous organisation. It's a collection of vested interests with some people in the middle trying to make it all work. Uh, And secondly is it it makes great play of the fact that the Club Financial Control Board, although it's the UEFA body, certainly the higher adjudicatory chamber is um, made up of people called in from outside UEFA. Uh, And it Great play is made of the independence of this body. And I think what's become obvious in the last few days, that independence is a sham. It doesn't exist. Because Seferin is going around up to just before Christmas. When we say, we, we, and we said this before on the pod, when we play those last two Champions League games, he was there, our game. He was talking to Calderon Al Mubarak. He was trying to get us to plead guilty to a technical offence, accept a fine, and then it would all go away. Uh, so it really just show up the lack of independence of the club financial control board adjudicatory chamber and um but but i know you want me to talk i've gone on a bit but you want me to talk about stefan i'll I'll try and keep it as brief and as succinct as possible stefan for those who don't know um is a a commercial lawyer is uh, a ceo of a reasonable sized company Uh, and on behalf of that company He's just fought off a big case against that company in the court. So he knows his way around. And um, he published two very in-depth forensic articles on the 9320 body, if we can mention them. And and, and basically, he feels we've got at least two grounds for appealing this. So the first is timing. Now, now as we've said before, UEFA has um, a statute of limitations in the financial fair play, sorry, in the CFCB rules that it cannot reopen a case more than five years after the original breach. Remember those words, after the original breach. Now, UEFA published its uh, official decision to sanction us on the 16th of May 2014. So five years after the 16th of May 2014 it's the 16th of May 2019. And funnily enough, UEFA passed the case from the investigatory chamber to the um, adjudicatory chamber on the 15th of May. So the investigatory chamber opened the investigation on 19th of March or something like that. So UEFA obviously felt that the dates were not a coincidence. UEFA obviously felt that the five-year statute of limitations applied from the date when they published their official findings. So when we, when the world found out what the sanctions were. Now, Stefan argued that that's probably wrong because, as I said, the rules say five years after the original breach. The question was, in legal terms, when was the breach? You could say it was the end of the 2013 financial year, which is 30th of May 2013. You could say it was when we submitted our return to UEFA which would probably have been sometime in the summer-autumn of 2013. At that point, we would have known there was a breach. UEFA would have formally notified us we're in breach. We don't know when that happened. Stefan's argument on that score was those dates probably take precedence over UEFA's imagined date of the 16th of May 2014 for that, quote, original breach. So, So that's one ground we might fight it on. The second was, of course, in 2014, as part of those negotiations, we concluded a settlement agreement with UEFA. Now, normally in those settlement agreements, there will be a clause to say that this is a full and final settlement of this matter. And if that's the case, then again, UEFA are risking uh, a legal challenge over whether they had the legal power to reopen the settlement agreement. Now, we don't know what was in it, so it's pure speculation, of course. But Stefan's view as a commercial, ex- experienced commercial lawyer is... Almost certainly there would have been a, a clause of that. Now, there might have been a clause which said, we won't reopen it unless new information comes to life. And the question is, was it really new information? Yeah. So again, Stefan feels that that's also dodgy on legal grounds and that the UEFA can't actually go back to those events. They can only look at, and of course, the settlement agreement covered us to 2016. And the point's been made that, that in that period, 2014, 2016, our books our financial records must have been the most scrutinised in almost in football history. We could not have been under more scrutiny than we were up to 2016. So if they missed that, then uh, you know auditors, UEFA's auditors, our auditors, all sorts of people would have looked at our finances and signed off the settlement agreement saying we were no longer in breach or we'd met, we'd met the terms of the settlement agreement. So Stefan's legal view is that they could potentially only be looking at stuff that occurred since 2000 so that's 2016, 17, 17, 18, uh, 18, 19. So, so that was to try and put it in as much of a nutshell as possible, uh, because one of these documents alone was 30. I think some like 30. No, no, sorry, I'm getting confused, but. It was quite a, an in-depth legal document, and um, but I'm trying to summarise the arguments as I understand them. And, of course, there's other reasons we could go to UEFA, uh, go to CAS. One is, as we've already seen, I'm sure we'll be bringing up the um, case of the leaks uh, and whether that had an impact on, on the outcome of the um, in- investigation. I'm sure we'll be bringing up the fact, or I hope we'll be bringing up the fact, that um, the CFCB adjudicator chamber is claimed to be independent, yet everyone seems to be pushing them in a different direction. So, so you've got to question the independence of the process. I think one thing I think we will be pushing is um, the, uh, we'll be talking about the chief investigator, Yves Le Term, the former Belgian prime minister. For so people are not in the picture say ibla term is the chief investigator of the lower investigatory chamber he's like the witch finder general if you like he's the man who did the investigation and laid the charges against us and passed the recommendation for a ban presumably that was the recommendation that was that was what leaped, up to the adjudicatory chamber who sat on it for hmm, best part of a year really but i think uh, may no uh, well over six months nearly nine months do so you wonder what they were doing? What was going on? Let's go to let's go to term. If you recall, at the same time that we were sanctioned in two thousand and fourteen, PSG were also sanctioned, and PSG, of course, are, are owned and sponsored heavily by Qatar. We've talked, I think, before about the related party relationship that that you have to uh, account for if you're dealing with a party which is connected to your owners. Now, uh, there's no doubt that the Qatari Investment Fund owns PSG, therefore investment from some, and it was fairly ill-defined investment, or I think it was a Q- Q- Qatari Tourist Authority. Yeah. There's no doubt that involves a related party, none whatsoever. Uh, and that's why our arrangement is much cleverer than in, in Qatar's. So, um, the Qatari Tourist Authority sponsored uh, PSG to the tune of 200 million euros, and... Um, I think everyone saw that as somewhat excessive because a typical shirt sponsorship in this country, at the time, you were looking at maybe 40 million pounds. So, you know, 45 million euros, something like that. So 200 million euros is a vastly inflated figure. Now, nothing to stop PSG taking that money. They did take that money, I'm sure. And that's 200 million a year in one season, not 200 million spread over five seasons. There's nothing to stop PSG taking that money, but there's only a limited amount of it that they can declare for FFP purposes if it's not considered what UEFA call fair value. And what UEFA do in these cases, as they did with us, is they send in, I don't know, what they call brand consultants. So these people look at the arrangement and assess what they believe would be a fair value of this arrangement um, if it wasn't a related party. So if it's just Joe Bloggs and not the Qatari Investment Authority, what would that be worth to them? What would they pay for that? Now, I think even Stefan, no, it wasn't Stefan, another lawyer called Mark Stevens, again, very eminent human rights lawyer. He certainly argued that UEFA has no right to do this. But it's in the rules, that's what they say, that their brand experts valued this rather vague, you know, fuzzy sponsorship at less than 10 million euros. So they've knocked it down from 200 million euros to 10 million euros. It's a pretty fair chunk. I'm sure you'll agree. You know, it's like 5% of the original amount. So that meant that say, uh, PSG could keep the 200 million euros, but for financial fair play purposes, they could only declare as revenue whatever the UEFA agreed the fair market value was, which was maybe up to 10 million euros. But what, what even a term did, he unilaterally, without consulting with his colleagues, he unilaterally decided that he would allow 100 million euros. Which was ten times more than ten times what the own, what the consultants he himself had engaged to give him a view had recommended. Can I just add that,
2: that I think PSG were allowed to bring in their own um, external consult- uh, consultants for this, and they brought in Nielsen, who devalued uh, valued it at a hundred million. So that's where the hundred millions come from.
1: Right. And no, the, no, no, I, I thought, yeah, I'm not yeah. Sure. Then the
2: term decided arbitrarily which one he'd pick.
1: So, but there's a big difference between 100 million and 10 million. Yeah. Well, what so, you should you know,
2: know, get a third one in. That's what uh, yeah, well, a reasonable person would expect. You get a third one in because it, that, that, that disparity is so huge.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, because the disparity was so huge from what UEFA's own ex- experts were saying uh, uh, and uh, what PSG's experts were saying, um, and that uh, the term, without talking to his committee, his investigatory chamber, signed off this 100 million. Now, even the investigatory chamber, and he passed that up to the adjudicatory chamber. Now, even the investigatory chamber were shocked at this, and they, as I understand it, uh, they demanded that the case be reopened. So it's gone to the adjudicatory chamber. The Investigatory chamber have all gone. WTF or whatever language you know you, they, they speak say, exactly. and for God's sake, you know, we want to look at this again. Now, unfortunately, I'm sure it was just bureaucratic incompetence. They missed the deadline for reopening that case which was 10 days so, so so PSG just scraped in the maximum allowable loss under financial fair play and weren't challenged over this so so I'm sure city sorry to divert a little bit but I'm sure city will bring up inconsistencies in that PSG were allowed to either allowed to appoint their own brand consultants or the term then made a unilateral decision to accept that number whereas they were forcing us to accept a lower valuation without the chance to make our own take our own view on it or, or get a third party and to take our own view on it. so i'm sure that's another thing that city will bring up the term already knew well the term was Belgian prime minister i think it was 2011 they were putting in at belgium belgium and the netherlands were putting in a joint bid for the world cup in 2018 which obviously took place in russia also, Qatar were pushing their 2020-2022 World Cup bid, and Belgium, Belgian FA, as far as I'm aware, supported them in that. Now, Bin Hammam, who was the, pushing the Qatari bid, he made a trip to Brussels to support the Belgian-Netherlands World Cup bid. And he was treated like a royal. He met the king. He was shown all sorts of stuff. You know, his guide on that occasion was Yves Le Qatar opened, um, opened a route from Doha to Brussels. And who was there to greet the flight when it came in? Yves Le So he's got some previous. This all may be very innocent. But he wasn't a stranger to Qatari politics at that time. Nasser al Khalafi has been charged with a counter bribery by the Swiss court. Uh, He was charged by FIFA. Apparently they've let him off and he paid them a million pounds to get off a bribery charge, which struck me as rather amusing. If you can see the funny side of that, he's paying FIFA a million pound. You could look at that as a bribe to get off a bribery charge. Oh, it's just a real nest of vipers, isn't it? I mean, you-
2: I, I, would, I would say you know, in my job as a many many years ago as a, as an internal auditor, my alarm bells would be ringing. I'd be all over this like uh, like uh, a dog on heat, so to speak, because you know it just it, you know, it just smacks of of, of, of something improper uh, taking place.
0: Guys, I think that you've done a great job there of um, just taking us through those points. Now, that's all I have for this particular episode, unless there are any other items you might want to about, Yeah,
1: and of course, there's been two, we must point, listeners, two great articles by yourself and Ray on the blog. Absolutely, Both of which have received a very good critical reception. Yes,
0: um, the the one that... uh, Ray put up, was the last one that's uh, going quite well. Um, it's up to about, uh, uh, 265, I think, uh, reads at the moment. And, um, then the one that I put out, uh, never imagined this, but this, uh, <laughs> it's up to 17,000 reads, but I think I know why, why that is. And I think that's because, um, someone tagged it into a thread on the Blue Moon Forum. And I think those got, they've got about 30,000 members on that. 100,000. So, um, 100,000, 100, is that right? Okay, so that, that would explain that. Obviously, someone said something nice about it on, on there, and that's why it got shared around. But yeah, that was amazing. Well, now...
2: Say something about Nick Harris, Colin. I'm going to ask Colin because it's his uh, his email to him, apparently.
1: Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got an email from Nick telling me that I was making a complete fool of myself and I was a laughingstock and everyone was laughing at me and I was playing, kind of playing to the Blue Moon Gallery and blah, 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 blah. Uh, I politely replied and telling him to um, go away. Yeah. I've got to, I've got to say this. I, I don't know how Nick
2: Harris has got the brass neck, the cheek, the gall, the audacity uh, to come out and say things like that. Because uh, we all know, uh, and we all should know, that Nick Harris was caught lying in a on Twitter last year in a very blatant manner. You go back to um, June... Um, so, you know, it, it, we can go and have a look. He got caught making something up, pretending that he'd got access to a video, which he had not got access to. And he just put something very inflammatory out on, on Twitter. It was a bareface lie, absolute bareface lie. And he, Nick doesn't want to go back and discuss this because he was caught lying, caught with his pants down. No wonder he's one of Barry's friends, but he was caught with his pants down. And everybody should be aware of the kind of in quotes, journalist Nick Harris really is, the kind of person Nick Harris really is. So when Nick Harris criticises you, you take that with a pinch of salt. You know you're doing something right because when a lying an awful like Nick Harris criticizes you, it's not worth worrying about. You've got people who are, who know nothing about the subject. And, you know, you've got people like Georgie Bingham, Sally Nugent um, coming on. And it, 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 you feel like, well, guys, you haven't got a clue. Certainly, Georgie Bingham hasn't got a clue. I, I accidentally heard a little bit uh, uh, on, on TalkSport at the weekend with her talking. It was just a waste of time. And then she comes out on Twitter as well. And it's like, well, why don't you just shut up? Because... All you're doing is showing us how ignorant you are of the subject matter. And then you come out and say something. And sadly, this is the way of the world now. People listen to you because you said it and think you know what you're talking about. And it's quite obvious you you don't. It'd be interesting to see what happens with Stanley Nugent, who... Has been saying, um, you know, read between the lines for the last few months. His pet has been dropping hints that he's going to leave.
0: We've got another game coming up pretty quick, as Ray mentioned. In the game against Leicester, and we'll be with you after that one as well. Now, for now, I guess it's time to bid farewell to the two guys, and we'll start off with uh, Colin. Colin, you've been everywhere. You've been on all of these different platforms. <laughs> But I'm happy to say that Finally. You're, you're most regularly on ours. So thank you so much for coming on. Of
1: course. And you're my home. <laughs> and you know, t- I, I may go away for a night or two, but it's always nice to come home. <laughs> 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 and you've also been listening to Ray
0: from the City Fan TV YouTube channel thank you so much Ray
2: oh you're most welcome mate. you know I I will never go anywhere else
0: <laughs> well there you are guys we'll finish in the normal way have one on us and enjoy it and off the Blues all three points.
3: Manchester City still alive here Baratelle. I swear you'll never see anything like this ever again. See, walk away your life if that turns you out. It's all in the moment, look away in the sky. It's about time that your mind took a holiday.